The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 38, a psalm of David to bring remembrance. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. For your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses me down. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long, for my loins are full of inflammation, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. Lord, all my desire is before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pants. My strength fails me. As for the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague, and my relatives stand afar off. Those also who seek my life lay snares for me. Those who seek my hurt speak of destruction and plan deception all the day long. But I, like a deaf man, do not hear, and I am like a mute who does not open his mouth. Thus I am like a man who does not hear, and in whose mouth is no response. For in you, O Lord, I hope... You will hear, O Lord my God, for I said, Hear me, lest they rejoice over me, lest when my foot slips they exalt themselves against me, for I am ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me, for I will declare my iniquity, I will be in anguish over my sin, but my enemies are vigorous and they are strong, and those who hate me wrongfully have multiplied, those also who render evil for good, they are my adversaries, because I follow what is good." Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. We are in Numbers 34, and we're going to do the whole chapter today. It's verses 1 through 29. I know it's a lot of verses, but it'll go quickly. This is entitled, The Earthly Inheritance. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you as an inheritance, the land of Canaan to its boundaries. Your southern border shall be from the wilderness of Zin along the border of Edom. Then your southern border shall extend eastward to the end of the Salt Sea. Your border shall turn from the south side of the ascent of Akrabim, continue to Zin, and be on the south of Kadesh Barnea. Then it shall go to Hazar Adar and continue to Asmon. The border shall turn from Asmon to the brook of Egypt, and it shall end at the sea. As for the western border, you shall have the great sea for a border. This shall be your western border. And this shall be your northern border. From the great sea, you shall mark out your border line to Mount Hor. From Mount Hor, you shall mark out your border to the entrance of Hamat. Then the direction of the border shall be towards Zedad. The border shall proceed to Zephron, and it shall end at Hazar and Nan. This shall be your northern border. You shall mark out your eastern border from Hazar Anan to Shepham. The border shall go down from Shepham to Rivla on the east side of Ain. The border shall go down and reach to the eastern side of the Sea of Kinneret. The border shall go down along the Jordan, and it shall end at the Salt Sea. This shall be your land with its surrounding boundaries. Then Moses commanded the children of Israel, saying, This is the land by which you shall inherit by lot which the Lord has commanded to give to the nine tribes and to the half-tribe. For the tribe of the children of Reuben, according to the house of their fathers, and the tribe of the children of Gad, according to the house of their fathers, have received their inheritance, and the half-tribe of Manasseh has received its inheritance. The two tribes and the half-tribe have received their inheritance on this side of the Jordan, across from Jericho eastward toward the sunrise." And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, These are the names of the men who shall divide the land among you as an inheritance, Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun. And you shall take one leader of every tribe to divide the land for the inheritance. 
These are the names of the men from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, from the tribe of the children of Simeon, Shemuel, the son of Amihud, from the tribe of Benjamin, Elidad, the son of Chislon, a leader from the tribe of the children of Dan, Buki, the son of Jogli, from the sons of Joseph, a leader from the tribe of the children of Manasseh, Haniel, the son of Ephod, and a leader from the tribe of the children of Ephraim, Kemuel, the son of Shiftan a leader from the tribe of the children of Zebulun, Elizaphan, the son of Parnach, a leader from the tribe of the children of Issachar, Patiel, the son of Azan, a leader from the tribe of the children of Asher, Ahihud, the son of Shelomi, and a leader from the tribe of the children of Naphtali, Pedahel, the son of Amihud. These are the ones the Lord commanded to divide the inheritance among the children of Israel in the land of Canaan. After typing all of the mechanical information of these verses, such as the meaning of all of the places and names, the technical aspects of the Hebrew and so on, I laid out all of the names of the locations that are given and of all the names of the people that are named, and I looked for patterns which might alert me to a deeper reason as to why they're included. And guess what? I came up with nothing. However, there are some interesting patterns which we will see that the scholars of the past have laid out. And indeed, they show the marvelous wisdom of God in relaying what will come about in the future before these things even happen. But concerning a secondary set of reasons why specific names of locations and people are given, nothing jumped out at me with the exception of the name of one of the people listed, which is toward the end of the verses, his name is Parnach. Nobody can identify the root of where his name comes from. And so any meaning of the name would be complete speculation, and it would be without any basis for choosing it. And that is what the few references do. They guess, and they don't give a reason for the guess. What that shows us is that the listing is purposefully telling us that it is not a listing with a particular typological meaning. If it was, it would have a definite meaning to fit the type. Everybody see the logic there? Another thing that we can grab from the listing of named locations is that they form a border, which completely encompasses the land of Canaan. Places have names to identify where they are and often why the name is given. By giving the names of the locations which surround Canaan, we can obviously deduce that Canaan is a limited place which may not have walls, but it does have borders nonetheless. Within those borders are then more borders. That this is certain is seen in today's verses. There is Canaan for Israel. There are land inheritances for each tribe defined by Lot. And then there are family inheritances to be appointed by the leaders. Then individual properties will be parceled out to the people. And there are not only these borders on the people's physical existence in geography, but there are also borders on the physical lives of the people as well. People are born, they live, and they die. They have borders which say, you may go this far, but no further. The limitations are set, and both are set by the giving of law. Through law came sin, and from sin came death. The limitation is determined. And for Israel and Canaan, through the law came the inheritance, and through the law came its boundaries and its divisions. Our text verse comes from Galatians 3. It is verses 16 through 18. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Because the land could be described, the land has limitations. And so what appears to me to be the point of the contents of this chapter, beyond the obvious need to grant the inheritance of Canaan to the people in an orderly fashion, is to show that it is earthly, temporary, and not the final inheritance that man can expect. The land of Canaan is given as a pattern of the heavenly, as we will see in parts of the verses today, especially concerning the four directions which are named. But it is only that, a shadowy type of something which cannot be described. Indeed, John describes the new Jerusalem 
including its size and shape. But a city in heaven means that there is a heaven for the city to be in. Thus, the inclusion of heaven's description tells us as much or more than as does the inclusion of the city's description. And this may be what Paul was trying to tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. There he speaks of himself in the third person and says that he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Paul means that it is either one, a paradox, he heard speaking which may not be spoken because it is impossible for us to express the same words. In attempting to do so, he would do injustice to what he had heard. Or two, they are words which are not to be uttered by man at this present time. He was allowed to hear them, but forbidden from restating them. The second option seems more likely because of his final words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. The Bible scholar Bengel explains this by saying, Others who did not hear them cannot. Paul, who did hear them, is not sufficiently able. And though he were able, yet it would not be lawful. It would not be proper in the state of mortality because the inhabitants of the earth would not understand them. Unlike Canaan, we are not given a description of heaven because we cannot, in our moral minds, understand what it would be like. So much for people who write books about having gone to heaven. They haven't, so save your money. What we can know, however, is that because it is beyond our ability to express, it will be beyond magnificent, because man can express rather marvelous things. For now, we will contrast that heavenly inheritance with an earthly one. It's all to be found in his superior word, and so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is the boundaries of Canaan. It's verses 1 through 15. Verse 1, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, these words follow directly after the last major thought which was given. At the end of chapter 33, there were seven verses which were given concerning subduing the land of Canaan. That section began with the words, Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, destroy all their engraved stones, destroy all their molded images, and demolish all their high places. You shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it, for I have given you the land to possess. Obviously, if the people are given the land to subdue and possess, they must then know what the borders of that land are. Thus, this next section logically follows in order. There are several obvious reasons for needing to know the exact borders of the land. The first is because they have to be instructed to exterminate all of the inhabitants of the land. To not have set boundaries would mean either failing to exterminate some who should be exterminated, or it would mean that some who should not be wiped out might be wiped out. Secondly, the land that is given to them means that land outside of those boundaries is not given to them. They are to be content within their borders, unless the authority of expanding those borders is granted. This does not mean that they cannot wage war outside of those borders, but any such war is not to be specifically for the expansion of the people into those lands, but as a protective buffer, a land of subdued enemies who might pay tribute to their overlords, a land of exploitation of resources, and so on. Thirdly, by defining the boundaries of the land, it is a way of showing that the land, which is the Lord's, is already marked out and prepared by him for Israel. It is a note of surety that the Lord will be with them and that the battle is truly already won. A fourth reason is that with the boundaries defined and as Canaan is to be the land of rest for Israel, the people were not to rest until the land within those boundaries was subdued. This follows logically with the words of the previous chapter which said, But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Moreover, it shall be that I will do to you as I thought to do to them. A fifth implied reason for marking out the land is that Israel is to be content and grateful for what they are given. As the Lord gave it, 
they are to be satisfied with what they have been granted, and they are never to infer that they could have done better elsewhere. The Lord determined, and Israel is to accept and acknowledge that. Because of these things, verse 2, command the children of Israel and say to them, the words are for all of Israel to heed and understand. The corporate body is being given corporate instructions concerning their corporate dwelling, which is soon to be entered. Verse 2 continues, when you come into the land of Canaan. This is the point of everything concerning the land that has happened since this statement way back in Genesis 46. So he said, I am the God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt. He's speaking to Jacob, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. The Lord promised Jacob, who is Israel, that he would go down to Egypt and that he would be brought back up. Immediately after that, Jacob took his journey from Beersheba and he departed to Egypt. It was from that time until now, on the border of Canaan by the Jordan, that Israel had waited to receive their inheritance. Verse 2 continues, This is the land that shall fall to you as an inheritance, the land of Canaan to its boundaries. What will now be described has already been partially detailed to both Abraham and to Moses. In Genesis 15, it says this, On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Avram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Again, in Exodus 23, this was spoken by the Lord to Moses. And I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the Sea Philistia and from the desert to the river, meaning the Euphrates, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. What was spoken to both Abraham and later to Moses will now begin to be defined. What will be said here is less than those earlier promises. It encompasses only the land of Canaan and not the land which extends as far as the Euphrates. Thus, the term the land of Canaan speaks only of the land now to be described. It does not include anything beyond what will be marked out, and it is the standard reference throughout Scripture. Surprisingly, Israel never actually possessed all of that land because they never fully subdued the area along the southeast where Gaza is. In 1 Kings 4.24, it does say Solomon had peace as far as Gaza, but the inhabitants continued to live there. To this day, those areas are still inhabited by miscreants and enemies of Israel, and we're talking 3,500 years later, where it says, this is the land that shall fall to you. It is speaking of inheritance by lot. As the lot falls, so shall be the inheritance. The logic of placing the words of this chapter here is evident. First, the Midianites who had harmed Israel on its journey were subdued. Therefore, the matter, which was necessary to resolve at some point, will not interfere with the conquest of Canaan, nor would it be forgotten during the many years in which Canaan was being subdued. It is a matter completed and out of mind. After that was accomplished, the tribes of Reuben and Gad called for their inheritance east of the Jordan. It is logical to have that matter resolved first as well. The next thing that was detailed was the review of the entire set of journeys from the time Israel left Egypt until they had arrived at this point. From a historical perspective, that properly belonged in the narrative prior to delineating the borders of the land they were about to enter. And finally, the instructions for subduing the land were given. That logically comes prior to the marking out of the land. You are to do this, and two, here is where that is to be accomplished. The logic of the placement of each chapter is marvelously seen from a broader view. With those things stated, the land delineation now begins with verse 3. Your southern border shall be from the wilderness of Zin, along the border of Edom. Then your southern border shall extend eastward toward the Salt Sea. What is described concerning the southern border here is repeated in Joshua 15 verses 2 through 4 to describe the border of Judah, which is the southernmost tribe in the land of Canaan. The word south is Negev. That comes from a root meaning parched. 
As the south of Israel is a parched land, the term signifies both the direction and, at times, the desert area known as Ha-Negev, or the Negev, meaning the Negev Desert. The wilderness of Zin has been referred to five times already, starting in Numbers chapter 13. It is the area forming the border of Canaan, which is the beginning of the southern border. Zin means thorn or barb. From this starting point, the border extends along Edom's barter. Edom signifies red, and it is closely connected to Adam, or man. Edom's border goes all the way to the end of Yam HaMelach, or Sea, the salt, meaning the Dead Sea. The exact lines of what is described here are debated, but the general idea would have been understood by Joshua and those of Israel as they went through the land to subdue it. Verse 4, your border shall turn from the southern side of the ascent of Akrabim, continue to Zin, and be on the south of Kadesh Barnea. Then it shall go on to Hazar Adar and continue to Azmon. Next, there is a turning from the southern side of Ma'ale Akrabim. This means the ascent of Akrabim or the ascent of scorpions. The Akrav or scorpion is seen six times in scripture and it denotes that which is used for chastisement. The turn continues to Zin or thorn and the border continues to the south of Kadesh Barnea or holy purifying wanderings. This is the spot where Miriam died and it is also the spot where the spies were sent to Canaan. Here, a new word is introduced, totsa'ah or goings out. It comes from yatsa, which means to go or to come out. Thus, this is a place where there is a goings out of something or a termination. In this case, it is the goings out or endings of the border from the south to Kadesh Barnea. From there, the border continues on to Hazar Adar. The name comes from two words signifying village and majestic. Thus, it is the majestic village or village of greatness. If you know the uh, F-35 that they have in Israel right now, it is called the Adir. It's the same root word. It means majestic. And so they have renamed the F-35 in Israel the Adir. From Chatzar Adar, the border then proceeds to Azmon. Azmon comes from Atsom, meaning mighty. That comes from Etsem, meaning a bone. The idea is that the skeletal structure is what provides strength. Thus, the place is called Mighty or possibly Mighty One. Verse 5, the border shall turn from Atzmon to the brook of Egypt, and it shall end at the sea. From Atzmon, the border makes another turn to Nahal Mitzrayim, or the Wadi of Egypt. It is a brook which flows during times of rains, but otherwise it is a dry riverbed. Here the word totsa'ah, or goings out, is used again. The southern border has its ending, or goings out, at the sea. This location is a little bit south of Israel's border today in a city known as El Arish, which is on the Mediterranean Sea. It is the same border that Ezekiel prophesies will be the southern border of Israel during the millennium, as is stated in Ezekiel 47:19. The southern border as described here, cuts off the V portion of Israel, which extends today all the way down to the Red Sea, where Elat is. That would be a later part of Israel, as is recorded elsewhere. But instead of a long extending V, these borders now given are a shorter U shape. Verse 6, as for the western border, you shall have the great sea for a border. This shall be your western border. This verse explains some of the misunderstandings that have occurred by scholars in earlier verses back in Exodus. The word translated as Western here is Yam. It literally means sea, and it is used two more times in this same verse. First when speaking of Yam Hagadol, or Sea the Great, and then again as Gebu Yam, or Border Western. A literal translation of this verse would be, and border sea, and shall have you the sea, the great, and border this shall be your border sea. The reference for the translation of Yam as west is because the reference is that of the land of Canaan. Even when Israel was outside of Canaan, the term is still used to speak of the west because Canaan is the basis for the reference. Scholars, misunderstanding this, claim that the times the word yam are used in this manner, such as in Exodus during the account of the construction of the tabernacle, 
they must be later inserts. But Israel came from this land, and the concept of Yom, meaning West, goes all the way back to the time of Abraham. The pulpit commentary even includes this incorrect evaluation in their commentary of this verse. They say, it cannot be overlooked as one small indication that the language of this passage, at any rate, is the language of an age subsequent to the conquest of Canaan. In other words, as has been seen before, they say these words are not original, but are a later insert. But the text stands for itself, especially in the construction of the tabernacle, where the western end of the tabernacle also uses the same term, yam, to explain its location. We talked about it when we were back in those verses. It is the Lord who is speaking. The western end of the tabernacle is where he dwells, and the western side of the land, which is his, meaning Canaan the land, is to the yam, or sea. The use of yam is consistent, it is logical, and it is precise. It is not a later insert. The word yam comes from an unused root, meaning to roar, as in the roaring breaking of waves. Thus, one could think of the western border as the great roaring. The sea is the western border, continues until the next border on the north, verse 7, and this shall be your northern border. The word northern is tzafon. It comes from a verb, tzafon, signifying to hide or to treasure up. The reason for this is that Canaan is in the northern hemisphere. Yes, the world is round. And thus, the north is the direction that is hidden from the sun more and more as the winter months come on. The northwest is where the sun last delights in the morning, and the northeast is where it first recedes at night. Thus, the north is hidden away. This is also seen in the placement of the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle, away from the north. Again, the reference is that of Canaan and of the dwelling place of the Lord. Is everybody seeing this? The tabernacle faces this direction. Everything that is being said so far resembles the tabernacle in the layout of the land of Canaan. You have the south, you've got the west, you've got the north, and you've got the east, and each one of those is identified by the tabernacle because the tabernacle is in Canaan and the Lord is in the tabernacle. Okay? Uh, verse 7 continues, From the great sea you shall mark out your border line to Mount Hor. Here is a new word, ta'ah. It is only found here and in the next verse. It gives the sense of pointing out, and thus one can mark out a border based on the pointing. If one stands on the shore of the great sea and points to Mount Hor, that is the marking, just as a bird would fly. Mount Hor, or Mount of the Mountain, is not the same as Mount Hor where Aaron died. It probably signifies a double mountain. Scholars are wholly divided on what this is speaking of. Some insist that it is Mount Hermon, others Mount Amana, which is mentioned in the Song of Solomon. Whichever it is, the people would know when they were directed to it. Verse 8, from Mount Hor, you shall mark out your border to the entrance of Hamat. Then the direction of the border shall be towards Zadad. Here is the second and last use of Ta'ah in the Bible. One can see that the mountain was sufficiently placed where it could be pointed at from the other location and thus keep people from claiming a border which the Lord had not otherwise designated. From Mount Hor, one would mark out to Lebo Hamat, or the entrance of Hamat. This is the same location that the spies traveled to in Numbers 13, verse 21. The name means defense or citadel. From there, the border would travel toward Zedad. The name Zedad is only found here and in Ezekiel 47, 15. It comes from Tzad, meaning a side. Once again, that's the layout of the land during the millennial reign of Christ. And Ezekiel is confirming that it is the same borders that were given by Moses thousands of years earlier, which will again be considered the land of Canaan someday in the future. Verse 9, the border shall proceed to Zephron, and it shall end at Hazar and Nan. This shall be your northern border. From Zedad, the border then heads to Zephron. The best guess of the meaning of Zephron is sweet smell. From there, the northern border ends at Hazar and Nan, or village of eyes, or village of springs, because springs resemble eyes. Verse 10, you shall mark at your eastern border from Hazar Anan to Shepham. The final border is Kedem, or east. The word signifies aforetime, ancient time, that which is everlasting or eternal, and 
forward. The reason why it is forward is because the temple of the Lord faces east, thus forward. Again, as has been seen, each time the direction is in reference to Canaan as if the Lord is there in his dwelling. From the village of Springs, the eastern border is to be Ava, or marked out south to Shepham. This is a word found only here in the entire Bible. It signifies to draw. Thus, the border is described with a mark, probably like we do on trails today. Depending on the route, the name Shepham means either swept bare or fenced in. From there, verse 11, the border shall go down from Shepham to Rivla on the east side of Ain. Here, the border is said to go down. Thus, there is a descent which goes to Rivla. The name signifies a fertile, fruitful place. It is said to be on the east side of Ain. The name means an eye, and thus literally a spring of water. It is one of the springs which would feed into the Jordan. Verse 11 continues. The border shall go down and reach to the eastern side of the Sea of Kinneret. Here the border would again descend to the shoulder of Yam Kinneret, meaning the Sea of Galilee. The word used speaks of the mountain slope on the northeast side of the Sea of Kinneret, which is its shoulder. The name Kinneret comes from Kinor, meaning a type of harp. The reason for the name is the shape of the sea, which looks like a harp when viewed from above. As the border is on the east of these places, the water rights are included in the land rights of Israel. Verse 12, the border shall go down along the Jordan and it shall end at the Salt Sea. From the Sea of Kinneret, the border continues down the Jordan or descender and ends at the Salt or Dead Sea. What is a rather beautiful picture concerns this eastern border and how it looks to Christ. As we already know, the Jordan, meaning the descender, is a type of Christ. As the Jordan comes from Mount Hermon, the snow-capped mountain, we can see a picture of Christ who came from heaven where there is no sin, only righteousness. That is explained by Isaiah where he says this, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Everybody see the symbolism? Hermon is way up high. There's snow on the top. And so it's a sinless place. Christ is coming from there. From there he descended even all the way down to death itself, to the Dead Sea, the lowest spot on earth, typical of the pit of death. But while there, he remained in a state of incorruption, typified by Yam HaMelach, or the Salt Sea. Salt as we have seen, among other things, signifies incorruption. Understanding this, the significance of Acts 2.27 is seen. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Everybody see the picture of Christ there? It's astonishing to think of the Jordan running from Hermon all the way down to the pit of death, but he remained incorruptible in death. Marvelous. Verse 12 continues, This shall be your land with its surrounding boundaries. This is the entire scope of the original land grant to Canaan. The most difficult to determine areas are those of the northern border, but there are disagreements on the exact shape of the south in some places as well. Verse 13, Then Moses commanded the children of Israel, saying, This is the land which you shall inherit by lot, which the Lord has commanded to give to the nine tribes and to the half-tribe. These words explain verse 2. The inheritance that falls to Israel is because it is inherited by Lot. As the Lord determines in the falling of the Lot, so the inheritance falls to the people of these nine and one-half tribes. Originally, there was a land of about 160 miles in length and about 50 miles wide, often much less. If you look at it from the border of the Sea of Galilee to the ocean, it's only eight miles wide there. George Bush, when he was there, said, I can't believe you have to defend this. My driveway is longer than the width of your nation. It is a sliver of land among the nations. Verse 14, For the tribe of the children of Reuben, according to the house of their fathers, and the tribe of the children of Gad, according to the house of their fathers, have received their inheritance, and the half-tribe of Manasseh has received its inheritance. As was seen in chapter 32, and what is seen again in this chapter, despite this land across the Jordan being possessed by Israel, it is not a part of Canaan. It is merely an area of possession. The granting of the inheritance to these two and one-half tribes was minutely detailed in chapter 32. It is their inheritance, but it is not a part 
of Canaan proper. Verse 15, the two tribes and the half-tribe have received their inheritance on this side of the Jordan, across from Jericho, eastward toward the sunrise. The words here again show Canaan as the reference. It does not say on this side of the Jordan. It says on side of the Jordan, a term which can mean either side. It then explains what that means by saying eastward toward the sunrise. The borders of your land are already decided. I have set them for you as your place to dwell. In you I have trusted and confided, and so to you I am granting the land as well. This is the land of Canaan, which I promised before. I promised it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob too. Now you are about to enter as you stand at the door. This is the land that I am giving to you. O Israel, if you will but pay heed to my word, if you will only bend your ear and listen to me, I have brought you to this land, I the Lord. Open your eyes, Israel, I want you to see. If you will cherish me and to me have hearts that are true, you may dwell long in the land which I am giving to you. Our second thought today, one leader of every tribe, it's verses 16 through 29. Verse 16, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, a new section is introduced with these words. After defining the borders of the land, the Lord now proceeds to define who will be responsible for the division of that land. The division is to be completely fair and impartial. And these men are selected so that such will be the case. And so the Lord proceeds. Verse 17. These are the names of the men who shall divide the land among you as an inheritance. Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun. Unless this is simply speaking of casting lots, this cannot be speaking of tribal division of the land. The lots would be thrown for the division among the tribes. We've seen that before. But then the size of the family within the tribe was to be the standard division within the allotted territory. Therefore, this is speaking of that. Eliezer and Joshua represent the leaders of the congregation, which is formed as a theocracy. They would thus be included in any division to ensure that everything was done according to the will of the Lord. Along with them, verse 18, and you shall take one leader of every tribe to divide the land for the inheritance. One leader was to be selected with overall authority of the division of the land between families. It would be this person who worked under the approving eyes of Eliezer and Joshua to ensure the family inheritances were met according to size. Interestingly, Albert Barnes notes the following. The order in which the tribes are named is peculiar to this passage. If they be taken in pairs, Judah and Simeon, Benjamin and Dan, Manasseh and Ephraim, Zebulun and Issachar, Asher and Naphtali, the order of the pairs agrees with the order in which the allotments in the Holy Land, taken also in couples, followed each other in the map from south to north. It is a note then that the Lord is in complete control of what will occur concerning the lots. Long before they are cast, the order of tribal selection for inherited land is already set in the written record. Despite not matching the order in which the lots were cast, they match the order in which they are laid out. It is an obscure pattern which makes it all the more astonishing when considered. That's the kind of thing I love to read, a commentary like that which shows that God's hand is all over this word, all over it. Verse 19, these are the names of the men from the tribe of Judah, Caleb the son of Jephunneh. Here Caleb is the only leader who was selected as a tribal leader in Numbers 13. Other than him, all of the other leaders had died in the wilderness wanderings. Caleb means dog. Yefuneh means he will be beheld. Verse 20, from the tribe of the children of Simeon, Shemuel the son of Amihud. The name Shmuel is the same as our English Samuel. It means name of God or heard of God. Amihud means my kinsman is glorious. Verse 21, from the tribe of Benjamin, Elidad the son of Chizlon. Elidad means whom God loves. Chizlon means factless confidence. You would think of faith there. Verse 22, a leader from the tribe of the children of Dan, Buki the son of Jogli. Buki means wasteful, Jogli means exiled. Verse 23, from the sons of Joseph, a leader from the tribe of the children of Manasseh, Haniel the son of Ephod. Haniel means graciousness of God. Ephod means something like girdle. Verse 24, and a leader from the tribe of the children of Ephraim, Kemuel the son of Shiftan. Kemuel means something like gathering of God. Shiftan means something like judicial. 
Verse 25, a leader from the tribe of the children of Zebulun, Elizaphan, the son of Parnach. Elizaphan means God hides or God has protected. The meaning of Parnach is unknown. Verse 26, a leader from the tribe of the children of Issachar, Paltiel, the son of Azan. Paltiel means deliverance of God. Azan means very strong, like Charlie Garrett. Verse 27, a leader from the tribe of the children of Asher, Ahihud, the son of Shelomi. Ahihud means brother of majesty. Shalomi means my peace. Verse 28, and a leader from the tribe of the children of Naphtali, Pedahel, the son of Amihud. Pedahel means God has ransomed, and Amihud was said a few seconds ago. Again, it means my kinsman is glorious. Verse 29 finishes us up today with both the verses and the chapter. These are the ones the Lord commanded to divide the inheritance among the children of Israel in the land of Canaan. Not only were these tribes organized from a geographical perspective, as noted in verse 18, but they were also structured in a unique family way. This is described by Joseph Benson. Judah and Simeon, both sons of Leah, dwelt by one another. Next, Benjamin of Rachel and Dan of Rachel's maid, Manasseh and Ephraim, both sons of Joseph, had the next place. Zebulun and Issachar, who dwelt next together, were both sons of Leah. And the last pair were Asher of Leah's maid and Naphtali of Rachel's maid. Here, therefore, we have an evident proof of the wisdom of God's providence and of his peculiar care of his people. The chances of such unusual groupings between these two patterns and the fact that nothing is openly said about them anywhere in Scripture reveals a marvelous wisdom was at work long before the divisions were actually made. For the student of the Bible who takes the time to understand what is otherwise hidden, there's an amazing degree of confidence in the fact that this truly is the divinely inspired Word of God. And because it is, and because it tells us of our assured inheritance in heaven, and this you will see all too well in a coming sermon, because of the person and work of Jesus, we can and we should have the greatest encouragement and hope in this life. What is coming is so magnificent that Paul himself could not lawfully utter concerning what he had seen. He had a moment, a mere moment in the presence of glory, and words failed him. As heaven is without borders, it is an eternal expanse. And because our lives will continue without the border of the ending of time, we have an eternal future to search out that eternal expanse of heaven, looking into the mind of God with unceasing and endless joy as we do. Canaan was a land of promise and abundance, but it was a land of law and death. We will have the former forever because Jesus prevailed over the latter for us. God be praised. Jesus has prevailed. We talked about it in the prophecy update, and I'll talk about it again right now. The Bible says that we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. When we believe that he's the son of God, when we call on the name of the Lord, we're saved. And guess what? It says we overcome. Who is he who overcomes? It's one that believes that. And when you overcome, Jesus says that when you do, I will never blot out your name from the book of life. It is a done deal. I feel so bad for people that sit in churches and are told you can lose your salvation. We're going to talk about that at the end of the Bible class next week because Jim asked me to. We're going to do the duck examples again just to refresh people on what's going on with election, predestination, salvation, all of that kind of stuff. But I got to tell you something. I feel so bad when people sit in churches and they hear these things and they get confused in their minds and they're scared because the pastor says, well, you've lost your salvation. Why would you even bother going to a church like that when the Bible is so clear and precise on this? You believe Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Let's read it. Let's just read it so I don't think you're, or you don't think that I'm blowing smoke here. I'm not. We're going to go to, first we'll go to... Uh, 1 Corinthians. Let me take you to 1 Corinthians 5. No, I'm sorry, 15. I'm going to read you something there. This is the gospel by which you are saved if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Here's the gospel. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. Okay, that's the gospel. He did these things for us. Okay, and then in Romans 10, 9, and 10. It says there that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. 
So now you're declared righteous by God. You're saved. And then he says in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, right here, Charlie, verses 13 and 14, in him, meaning Jesus, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So you're saved. You've heard it. You've believed it. You're saved. In whom also, having believed, here it is, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. God has given you a guarantee. If that doesn't come true because of something you have done, then it was never of grace and his guarantee is not worth diddly. That's the truth of the matter, but it is. And he will never blot you out of the book of life. Yes, I know that we all do things we wish we hadn't done and we think things we wish we wouldn't think. But God has factored all of that into the equation by the giving of his son, which is way greater than any sin we will ever commit. So if you've never simply trusted in Jesus, give your life to him. Just say, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. I believe that you're the son of God. I believe this and I want to be an overcomer. And at that moment, you will be an overcomer. I got a closing verse for you here from 1 Peter 1. It's verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here it is. We just talked about an earthly inheritance for Israel. He says to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That sounds like eternal salvation to me once again who are kept by the power of God, not by our power, not by our deeds or misdeeds, but by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I was talking to Bob about that this morning. Jesus is coming. We're in the end days. He's going to be here soon. Oh, it's going to be great when he takes us out of here. Next week is Numbers 35, 1 through 8. It is just as the Lord willed. It's entitled The Levitical Cities. A prophecy fulfilled. That'll be your 68th number sermon. Yes, there's prophecy already being fulfilled in the Bible, and we're only in the fourth book of the Bible. And I'm talking about it's fulfilled at that time in the Bible. Great stuff. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you're lost in the desert, wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there, and he's carefully leading you right there, right there to the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he'll do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Here's our poem. It's a little long, but it, it's not long in time. It's just long in words. It's entitled, The Earthly Inheritance. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, These are the words he was to him relaying. Command the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land of Canaan, please take note. This is the land that shall fall to you as an inheritance, the land of Canaan to its boundaries. As to you, I quote, Your southern border shall be from the wilderness of Zin, along the border of Edom, as fixed by me. Then your southern border shall extend eastward to the end of the Salt Sea. Your border shall turn from the southern side of the ascent of Akrabim, continue to Zin, so you are shown, and be on the south of Kadesh Barnea. Then it shall go to Hazaradar and continue to Asmon. The border shall turn from Osmon to the brook of Egypt as directed by me, and it shall end at the sea. As for the western border, you shall have the great sea for a border. This shall be your western border according to my order. And this shall be your northern border. From the great sea, you shall mark out your border line to Mount Hor. From Mount Hor, you shall mark out your border to the entrance of Hamat. Then the direction of the border shall be towards Zadad. But that's not all, as there is more. The border shall proceed to Zephron, and it shall end at Hazar Anan, according to my order. This shall be your northern border. You shall mark out your eastern border from Hazar Anan to Shepham, but I am not done yet. The border shall go down from Shepham to Rivla on the east side of Ain. The border shall go down and reach to the eastern side of the Sea of Kinneret. The border shall go down along the Jordan, and it shall end at the Salt Sea. This shall be your land with each surrounding boundary. Then Moses commanded the children of Israel, saying, More words to them he was relaying. This is the land which you shall inherit by lot, which the Lord has commanded to give to the nine tribes and to the half-tribe. This shall be their spot. For the tribe of the children of Reuben, according to the house of their fathers, and the tribe of the children of Gad, according to their house 
and the house of their fathers too have received their inheritance, and the half-tribe of Manasseh has received its inheritance. It is true. The two tribes and the half-tribe have received their inheritance. For them, it was like an early surprise on this side of the Jordan, across from Jericho, eastward toward the sunrise. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, these words to him he continued relaying, these are the names of the men who shall divide the land among you as an inheritance. Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun, starting with these two fine gents. And you shall take one leader of every tribe, so I say, to divide the land for the inheritance as I instruct you today. These are the names of the men from the tribe of Judah, Caleb the son of Jephunneh, from the tribe of the children of Simeon, Shemuel the son of Amihud, from the tribe of Benjamin, Elidad, the son of Hislon, as to you I now say. A leader from the tribe of the children of Dan, Buki the son of Jogli, from the sons of Joseph, a leader from the tribe of the children of Manasseh, Haniel the son of Ephod, and a leader from the tribe of the children of Ephraim, Kemuel the son of Shiftan, a leader from the tribe of the children of Zebulun, Elizaphan the son of Parnach, just as to you I have showed. A leader from the tribe of the children of Issachar, Paltiel the son of Hazan, a leader from the tribe of the children of Asher, Ahihud the son of Shelomi, and a leader from the tribe of the children of Naphtali, Petahel the son of Amihud, all of these as directed by me. These are the ones the Lord commanded to divide the inheritance among the children of Israel in the land of Canaan with their borders on each side. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct our lives would be a mess, and so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand, and may we take it into our lives daily, it apply. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, we certainly thank you for the blessings of this life, and we thank you that we do have an eternal inheritance, one which isn't earthly and corruptible, but one which resembles the very life of our Lord Jesus, who came from heaven and descended to death, but his death was in an incorruptible state. You raised him again, and you have given us the hope of eternal life through him. And we thank you for that. We thank you that nothing can take away this hope of ours. It is a joy and it is inexpressible. But we will try to express it for all of the ages to come because you are worthy of it. Lord God, we love you. We thank you for all you've done for us. We praise you and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we got the name Haniel, the son of Ephod. Haniel means graciousness of God. Okay. Can anybody give me a name from the New Testament, which is uh, the same root as that? It's, uh, I'll even give you the meaning of the name. It's grace. It's a person that's mentioned in the book of Luke. I believe it's chapter 3. It might be, I think it's chapter 2 of the book of Luke, but it might be chapter 3. Haniel. No Maserati today. Hannah. Grace. Hannah, the daughter of Phanuel. She was, what, 87 years old? Yes. She'd been waiting to see the Lord. Yes. There you go. Yes. Okay, well, that's all right. No Maserati, but at least you got a little instruction there. So.